name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Direct, O Lord, all our actions by thy holy inspirations and carry them on by thy gracious assistance so that every prayer and work of ours may begin from thee and by thee be heavenly through Christ our Lord. Amen. Amen. Our Lady of Divine Grace, pray for us. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen. Okay, so uh, we want to talk about, there's three conferences that we're going to do. They'll be somewhat short, except the second one might be a little longer. The first one is on what is the nature of truth. The second one is uh, on uh, the structure of brainwashing from a Thomistic point of view and what's happening when they're doing it um, and what they actually have to overcome in order to properly brainwash you. The third is on how to keep your sanity in the um, current world because that's also uh, connected to the truth. So um, before you get to the Christian era, uh, Aristotle ended up stating that you know a statement is true because what you st- the statement states it as it is. But there's no real clear definition of truth, which is one of the reasons why Pilate asks, well, what is truth? Because it was still something that was discussed somewhat at length by the philosophers, uh, you know, as to the nature of, of it. But by the time you get to the Christian time frame, uh, it's a little bit different. So then it progresses by the time you get to St. Thomas, then the definition is pretty clear. And then he bases his uh, work, um, um, the disputed questions on truth on that definition, and then builds from there. So he defines, uh, the the definition of truth is adequation. I'm going to talk about each one of these words. Adequation of intellect and thing. Okay. So why the word adequation? Well, it's called adequation because it's not exactly the same. So how the thing exists in reality and how it, exi- how it exists in the intellect are two different things. So one exists in, it's, it's concrete, it's actually real. The other one exists in my mind. So the essence exists in reality as an actual existing thing. And then in my mind, it exists what they say intentionally, that is inside my mind. It exists, so the mode of existence is different. But what the essence is or what the content that is known, it is what's in my intellect, what's in there has to congruent with what the thing is in reality in order for me to actually know the truth. So I know the essence of the thing, I know the essence of the thing, we'll see how we know that a little bit later in the next conference. But... Um, so I know the essence of the thing, and then I can make a judgment about it, and that judgment is where the truth lies. So I judge that, you know, this, the dogs are four-footed or what have you. But the point being is, is that um, it, the way it exists in my mind, the mode of existence is different, but the content is essentially the same. So what I know, so the essence that's in my mind, what the thing is in my mind, and what it is in reality are the same. So that's why he uses the word uh, adequation and not equation. Just that they're absolutely, absolutely equal because they're not exactly the same. It's because of the motive that way they exist. The point in all of this, though, is is that adequation in, indicates a congruity. That is that between two different um, or in relationship to at least two different things, there are there's a congruity between the two. If they're incongruous, then it's false. If, it's, if they do congruent, that is, that um, how it exists in my mind does congruent with the way it is in reality, 
then I actually know the truth about the situation. Okay, so uh, so it's in the intellect, and uh, so it's in the thing. If you break that definition down, so uh, the if you break that definition down, Saint Thomas says there's actually three kinds of truth. So if you look at the different ways that truth can be looked at from a variety of different point of views, there's actually three kinds. The first is truth in God. And this is actually God in God's in God is the absolute perfection or fulfillment of truth. Because in this particular case, we'll see this here in just a second. He St. Thomas defines it as adequatio intellectus et re. Oops, intellectus et re. It's the et. That's the key thing here. Why is it? Okay. So when God the Father, oops, God the Father, does an act of self-reflection, that is, he reflects upon himself and, ha- and conceives himself, that self-conception is absolutely perfect. There's absolutely nothing lacking. When we conceive ourselves, it's, there's all sorts of stuff lacking. A lot of it's not even true, in fact. But when he does it, because uh, he's omnipotent and because of the fact that um, there's no uh, admixture of potency, which is flawed, there's nothing flawed in him, there's, uh, when he conceives himself, that self-conception of God the Father of himself is an absolute perfect mirror image of him. And that we call God the Son. So, uh, and then as we also know, then um, from these two, comes the Holy Spirit, but we're not going to get into that. The main thing we want to focus on is the fact that in relationship, if you were looking at this analogously, God the Father is the, is the intellect understanding himself, and the thing that he understands is himself. But those two, those two, that is the understanding, the thing that's understood and the understanding are absolutely identical. So God, the thing understood, God the Father, the thing understood, and the... Uh, uh, so the thing understood, and the intellect, which is understanding it, God, the God the Father, is absolutely the same thing. But from the point of view of, uh, not from the point of view of person, because they're different persons, but from the point of view of what they actually uh, conceive. It's kind of interesting because St. Thomas says that when God the Father conceives himself perfectly, in that process is the conveyance of deity that is deitas in Latin. It's the actual, it's the essence of God the Father and God the Son is one and the same. They share the same essence. Okay. Even though they are um, different in persons. Okay. So the adequation of intellect and things. So the intellect is God understanding himself. So God the Father is the thing understood. And this thing, but the actual understanding, which comes from these two, is the Son. Okay. So God the Father is the absolute in God the Father and God the Son. Their relationship to each other has absolute coherence, which means that one perfectly fits or coheres or adheres to exactly the way the other one is. There's no difference. Okay. Except, in the, again, as I said, in the order of persons. Okay. Then the second one is in things. Okay, so this form of truth, 
truth in things, has a slightly different definition. It is the adequation of thing to intellect. Okay, so it's adequatio re et uh, ad intellectum. So let's break this down. In things, because God is omnipotent and whatever he causes is what occurs, because he's omnipotent, it's not like us who can, we try and do stuff, but it doesn't necessarily turn out the way we want because of the fact that we're limited. Whereas with God, he's omnipotent, and so anything he causes, it is caused, or the effect occurs exactly as how he causes it. There's, there's no disparity between those. Okay. So that means, therefore, that the thing, the ray, in this particular case, adequatio ray ad intellectum, that's the thing... It's the thing that perfectly adheres to the mind of God. So everything that exists, so if you, and I tell people this, if you actually want to know what God is thinking, just look at reality. We know he's thinking that this stone is brown. We know he's thinking that the grass outside is green. We know he's thinking, right, so there's a number of things, because if, if, if he wasn't thinking it, it wouldn't be that way. So that being the case, then the things perfectly adhere to the intellect. This is going to become really important uh, when it comes to our understanding of things. Okay. So because the thing perfectly adheres to how it is in the mind of God because of his causation, this means that this becomes the foundation for actually understanding certain things about God. So we know certain things about God by just looking at reality, that is the things, we look at reality and that actually tells us something about God's thinking patterns, what he, what he thinks, what he wants, etc. By the way, he inclines things, moves things, etc. So that actually tells us a great deal. So if, this is the, if the intellect is in relationship to God and this is reality, this means that with us, the way we know what's going on in God's mind or what God thinks or what he wants and wills, etc., is by looking at reality. This becomes the foundation for the natural law. This becomes the foundation for the proofs for God's existence, his attributes, etc. So you can derive all that from, the, from just looking at reality. Okay, so you have God. He causes the thing, which perfectly adheres to him. And then ours intellect actually looks at the thing, and then from that we can know something about God. So it's reality that ultimately determines what we know about God. This is why the philosophers always said, what you think about God and even your theology is determined by your cosmology, which is what you think about the world how you view the world, what you think it is, etc. What you think this thing is determines what you actually think in relationship to God, which is very true. Third, there is uh, in, truth in the created intellect. Okay. And this one is adequatio intellectus ad rem. To the thing. 
our intellect have to congrue with reality in order for us to be known what is true. Why? How do we know that? Because it's not, we aren't, A, we're not truth like God is here in the first example. Second, we're, uh, the, the, it's true that our intellects in a certain sense adhere to God, but in order for us to know the truth about things, we actually have to, we have to adhere to it because we aren't the truth. We're not like God that what we think is reality. This is one of the reasons why, from the time of Adam and Eve until now, we've been stuck with a particular problem because of original sin. Because the demons, uh, when they fell, they knew perfectly what the will of God is just by looking at themselves. And they had perfect knowledge of themselves. So they just look at themselves and they see what God's totality of his plan is, what he's asking of him because of their natural inclinations, etc. They just have to look at themselves and then they see the totality of it of what God's will is. And they even know the angels, etc. God infused in them the minds of all the essence of things so they can just look at those and see everything that's going on in relationship to that. So um, that's how they actually know. This. And so as a result of that, their minds perfectly adhere to this. Even demons, the angels, cannot be in error about the things that pertain to the essences of created things the things that pertain to God, aside from that which is known through revelation, because that's beyond their natural capacities, but they have perfect metaphysical knowledge of God. They also know, um, like as I mentioned, all the things that pertain to us. So they know all these things. There was also revelation given to them at the very beginning, because they had the virtue of faith at the very beginning. So they actually knew that God was triune and that he was going to become incarnate, etc. So there were certain, they knew a variety of different things. The only thing that they can actually, and technically speaking, they're not in error. And then all the things as they occur are infused in their intellect. So they're never in error about what is happening as to the concrete external reality of what is going on. They can make mistakes, not uh, in the intellect, but they can, when they look at, so for example, if you say something to them, um, and that what you say could have a variety of different meanings. They know every single meaning that that thing could have. But they'll proceed based upon its most common meaning or its most likely meaning. And Okay, so that all being said, uh, the point being is, is that with human beings, our intellect has to adhere to reality. But at the fall, the demons, they had this perfect absolute knowledge of reality. This is reality here, the thing. That absolute perfect knowledge of it. Some of them chose to accept reality. Some of them chose to re reject reality. And so in their wills, so in their intellects, they don't have error. But in their wills, they completely are at variance with what reality is. So when Satan shows up to talk to Eve, he presents to her something which is uh, very interesting. The demons knew they weren't God. They knew they couldn't make these determinations because they weren't God, but they wanted to be God in the sense that they wanted to make the determinations about what, what they were to do, what their happiness was to consist in, etc. Whereas human beings, because of our mode of knowing, we just don't understand these things as well. And so when he comes to eat, so in him, it's intellect is perfectly knows what's going on, but the will is at variance with it. But when he comes to talk to Eve, he presents it because she said, well, we're not supposed to eat of the, uh, the fruit of the tree because otherwise we'll die. And he says, you're not going to die, right? Rather, 
God doesn't want you to eat of the fruit because then you'll know, have knowledge of good and evil. What she's ultimately being tempted with is the, uh, if you look at the very base root of it, it's he's tempting her with, you can be the one who determines reality, not God. Because by your choice, you will know these things or these things will occur. And therefore, as a result of that, then, so he's presenting to her something which is to basically think that by her choice, reality will conform to her rather than the other way around, rather than us to reality. Okay. In fact, our entire spiritual life is really about, am I going to conform to reality or am I going to conform or make, try and make these determinations myself? Modernism fits this problem perfectly because of the fact that what? It transposes the basis of truth from external to myself. And as a result of that, I become ultimately the arbiter of truth in the end. Okay. And that's where we're kind of living today. So the created intellect, it has to adhere perfectly to the thing that is to reality so that I can know the things in relationship to God, but just so that I can actually know the truth about things. Okay. Now, this therefore means that St. Thomas says in knowing the truth, He says, I don't judge the thing greater than it is, nor less than it is, but as it is. This is why St. Thomas will say things like, truth lies in the mean. He's not talking about just the middle between great and less. He's talking about that where the truth lies is somewhere between the excess and the defect in my judgment. Okay. So what would be an example of that? Well, in relationship to the truth of the matter, I'll give you an example of where people um, judge things greater than it is. You just tell people, hey, you know, maybe you should just fast two times a week on, you know, one meal a day, twice a week. People think that the suffering involved with that and the difficulty in that is actually greater than it is. They're like, oh, Father, I just can't do that. The minute you just mention any fasting or any suffering, people just like they wilt. Right? So, and that's because of the fact that they're judging the things worse than it is. We're going to see why that is in the next conference. Because that's the problem. And, and that mechanism, by the way, is being used to brainwash people. Though, uh, sometimes it's actually less than it is. So, for example, people who commit sin think the thing is actually less evil than it actually is. It's not that bad. Right? So, or another example of this would be um, St. Thomas says in his um, the Secunda Secunda, question 153, um, he says, and there he says, what happens is, is people start out knowing that fornication is immoral, but then they do it. And then, so that first time they say, well, in this case, it's not that bad, right? So, or it's not bad, it's actually good. And then they keep doing it, and after a while, they start to think that it's okay in general. We actually saw that progression in our own culture, where people went from, in the 50s, it was, uh, fornication was considered unacceptable as a general cultural norm. By the end of the 60s, it was like, yeah, it's okay, right? If you love the person or what have you. But then now you get to the stage where people actually say, if you're not living with somebody before you're married, that's not a good idea, right? You should, the conventional wisdom, wisdom is that you should be shacking up before you marry, Right, so you can see the progression of that. So they don't actually see; they actually see that it's um, less evil than it actually is. Okay, or it's just you can just use a very simple example of if I have four dollars in my pocket 
<clears throat> and I ask you, how many dollars do I got in my pocket? And you say five. Well, that's not the truth. <clears throat> if you say three dollars, well, that's not the truth either. The truth is because it's less than it is. The truth is, is that I have four dollars in my pocket. What does this mean about truth? It means that uh, in an initial judgment, we can know the truth to some degree, but the truth actually gives us clarity in relationship to the thing when we actually know it as it is. When we don't fully know the thing, there's a lack of degree of clarity in relationship to it. So we can have some sense of it, we just don't have a lot of clarity. At least initially, it doesn't mean our thought because of this lack of clarity is false. It just means it's not as accurate and it's not the information is not as full as it needs to be, right? So I can say, well, uh, I've got some money in my pocket. I'm not sure how much, right? So that's true. I got some money in my pocket. It's another thing to say, I have $4 in my pocket. That's much more precise. So what does this mean? It means, okay, first let's back up. In relationship to things, they follow what's called the principle of excluded middle. And the principle of excluded middle is this. Either a thing is or it is not. Period. You've heard me talk about this principle in relationship to the church. Look, either you're in the church or you're out. There's none of this partial participation nonsense. Either you're in it or you're out. You know, okay. So the point being is the excluded middle because either a thing exists or it doesn't exist. And in relationship to how it exists and the various facts, so there's the substance, there's the various accidents, you know, so the, the person's color of hair, etc., which is an accidental existence in the person. So you have this accident, the precision with which you see that is based upon the principle excluded middle. What does that mean? It means that in relationship to truth, that if my intellect adheres to reality, and or to the thing, and the thing either is or it is not, that means that my judgment becomes um, uh, more and more precise the more it's able to hone down on where the thing exists and where it doesn't. Okay. And that's essentially what science is all about. That's why we specialize to get more and more de detailed knowledge down to the, the, the smaller and the finer points or, the more or to the more complex in certain cases um, or with greater depth, because the greater depth I have it, then the more precise my knowledge becomes. So a lot of times people will ask me to review books, which I can't really do too much anymore. But 90% of the time, the problem was is that their terminology lacked precision. This is the problem we're seeing in the church right now. You heard me talk about this before. The problem in the church is a lack of precision in the theological expression. And why is it a lack of precision? Because the expression... The words aren't adhering, because the words are the expression of what's in our mind, but the words don't congruent or adhere to the way the thing is in reality as precisely as they need to be. And this is the problem that we're actually, in fact, the imprecision can mean that you can actually be off. You can be the excess or defect in relationship to the thing. Whereas the more, whereas a person can be in the general ballpark, but then as you start to get, become more and more precise, you actually understand the thing more and more and more as it actually is in reality, okay? What does that mean? It means the more precise your knowledge becomes, the greater clarity you have in relationship to the thing. This is one of the signs that, uh, we'll see this when we get to brainwashing, one of the signs 
they do the brainwashing is occurring is they try and make, they obfuscate everything and make it very difficult to actually know the truth in order to dislodge your ability to make precise judgments and have clarity about the situation. Because if you don't have clarity, you're, it's easier to manipulate you and it's also easier to intellectually inform you. So this is part of that dynamic. The point being is, is that we ultimately want this clarity. This is something that uh, is, it, two things are actually interesting about that. The first is, is that in the church, certain bishops and even priests, but certain bishops and even priests in the Vatican and even certain people that worked in the Vatican would complain in the past that the Americans were, were, were wanting too much determination and too much clarity in something. Well, excuse me, but that's a natural inclination. We have a natural inclination relationship. When things are unclear, it, it just doesn't work well, right? So, and that's all we were looking for is the clarity. But that's actually part of the difficulty. The second component is because people are so habituated to following their, their emotions in relationship to how they judge whether a thing is true or not, because the, between the intellect and the thing is their emotions, and that tends to judge how they actually think of the thing. We're going to see that in the next conference. Because they're so habituated to thinking emotionally. And as a result of that, emotions are pretty amorphous. They're not really precise a lot of the times. In fact, they're kind of all over the map. They don't give you clarity about anything. In fact, if they do anything, they make you, um, you cloud your judgment. Okay. So that being the case, they're so habituated in that. Plus, then they've got this modernism thing going on where the truth is transposed to themselves, so everything's relative and subjective. Then the third component is is that in relationship to um, religious matters, you know, it, the church has been all, the people in the church, I should say, have been all over the map. There's been so much confusion and so much error. There's been so much going on <clears throat> that people have just implicitly come to the conclusion you can't have any clarity about these matters, okay, when it comes to religion. This has led to an interesting fact, be, uh, or an interesting experience for some of us who are actually put some podcasts out. Because I can't tell you how many times people have accused me of being arrogant and intellectually proud because of the way I present things with clarity. And first of all, I'll admit I'm arrogant in pride. Any man who doesn't is a liar. Okay, we all know that. That's not the issue. But the fact is, is the fact that I have clarity because I've studied these things for years and the fact that the church itself stuff is clear. And if you read the right authors, it's clear. And the fact that I can present it as clear has nothing to do with whether of my virtue or vice. It has to do with the nature of these things. These things are absolutely clear in reality. Any fuzziness is in our own heads. It has nothing to do with it. And fuzziness in your head does not translate into fuzziness in everyone else's head. So one guy, one guy one time said, you know, I was giving some presentation and he just says, well, I've never heard of this. So I finally just had to tell him, well, I'm sorry, but, you know, I don't mean to be rude, but your ignorance is not the standard of truth here, right? And this is something that people don't seem to grasp. It's, they've already psychologically are functioning as what's in their head is what is reality, right? And this is a serious problem. The, the aspect of this, which we just got done mentioning, because the truth and the creative intellect is uh, what's in my intellect is true or not, is because it adheres to reality that is the thing. Another word for the thing is object. It's the object of the intellect. That means that truth is always, always 
objective. When you hear people say something as daft as, um, well, all truth is relative. Well, sorry, that's an absolute statement. So you just violated the principle of non-contradiction in one statement, right? So you can't say that. That's just daft intellectually. In fact, it's such weak thinking. You have to, you scratch your head and you're just like, really? Are you that dumb that you can't see it? Okay. Point being is, though, is, is that some people say, well, isn't some truth subjective? No, it's not, actually. Because either my intellect adheres to the object or the thing or the reality, or it doesn't. Right? So there's not, that's based again on, because truth also follows the uh, principle of excluded middle, either it's true or it's not. Right? So, and, so it's not, my truth is my truth and your truth is your truth. Sorry. Why is it that there's, that technically speaking, there's only one truth? Why is there only one truth? Because there's only one reality. We all have to conform to the thing. And if we all understand the thing as it is, we will all actually understand the truth, right? About that thing, okay? So, and also God is one, so he's truth, etc. There's that, that, that truth is one is pretty, uh, that's one of those, you could give a whole lecture on it, okay? So I want to back up. So truth is objective, this is very important because what's happening is um, the, uh, they're trying to um, p- appeal to people's, we'll see this in the next conference, they're appealing to people's subjective dispositions in order to get them to make certain judgments which are contrary to reality. Okay. Um, the next, last one thing I'm just going to talk a little bit about, which I think is kind of interesting, has to do with, in this conference, because this is a lot to digest in a short period of time, and then we will talk about brainwashing because there's a very specific way that that's done. Okay. So, and that has to do with the fact that uh, truth is beautiful, right? Now, there's different definitions of beauty. Some say it's that which is pleasing to a cognitive faculty, which I think is probably the best definition. Um, some say define it as that which draws the intellect to contemplation, which it does. But I think that's more of the effect of uh, the grasping of beautiful. Um, whereas I think it's that which the fact that it is pleasing to a cognitive faculty. This is why when we see something that's beautiful, there's a, uh, an intellectual pressure we get out of it just by seeing it. We can also get a, uh, uh, appetitive pleasure out of it, but it's primarily it's an intellectual thing that we actually get from it. Okay. If you look at it, so there's three attributes of beauty. I just want to talk about those real quickly, and then we'll talk about how that applies to truth. The first is symmetry. Symmetry. So, when we see, for example, if a, if a human being is beautiful, it's because of the fact that in their face, the, 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 the two eyes and the nose and the mouth, it's, there's a symmetry between them, and a proportion between them. If a guy has a great big eye, one eye on one side and a little eye on another side, or his nose is clinked off to one side, he doesn't have symmetry, and so we don't say that they're actually beautiful. Okay, So there's symmetry, sometimes called proportion. Okay, Then the next one is there is a, a certain clarity about it. So uh, St. Thomas says that one of the attributes of beauty is, is that it makes itself known. We know this just by watching women come into a room. You can just sit here and watch the men and watch the women come into the room. If they're ugly, guys don't pay any attention and they just, they, 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 it's like nobody even walked in. 
the minute a really beautiful woman walked in, all of a sudden, woof, all the guys are looking at the woman. So there's a, it naturally draws our attention to, you know, but it, the clarity means it makes itself known. And that's the way the beauty is. This is one of the reasons why when you walk into a church and you're looking at these statues, these modern statues, and you're like, what is that? Is that Our Lady? No, I think that could be, I don't know, maybe it's Padre Pio. You know, you're sitting there looking at it, and you, you, don't, you have no clarity. That tells you immediately there, it has no beauty. Second, it has no clarity. And third, it's not going to draw you to contemplation other than trying to figure the thing out. But once you, but at a certain point, you're not going to figure it out, so you just give up. And so you just go do something else because you're not going to use it to contemplate. Right, okay. Which is, by the way, why some of the modernists specifically put ugly statues in the church because they didn't want people contemplating God. Okay. So, clarity. The last one is completeness. So, it has to be complete. All right. So, if there's anything lacking in it. So, this is actually one of the reasons why they say, for example, children are cute but not beautiful because <laughs> they're not complete yet. Okay. Uh, Aristotle says, I can say this with a certain amount of uh, entertainment value, Aristotle makes the observation, he says that um, short people are not, they're, they're cute but not beautiful because they're not complete, he says they don't, they don't have full enough stature, right, okay, which is kind of an interesting observation, I think there's a certain element of truth in that, so what does this have to do with the truth? In God, because... God the Father, in reflecting upon himself, which conceives the Son, and there's this absolute perfect coherence between the two. There's a perfect symmetry or proportion between God the Father and God the Son. So just in seeing truth in God, seeing this, you will see the thing that's absolutely or infinitely beautiful just by seeing that. Okay. It's clarity. Once you see it, it immediately makes itself known, and it's absolutely complete. It's infinite, in fact. Okay. In relationship to things, the symmetry is between the thing, that is, it exists exactly as it does because it, because it is exactly that way in the mind of God. And so there's where the proportion and the symmetry is. So there's a certain beauty in just seeing the relationship that creation has to God. And the clarity is, is that the thing makes itself known. You just look at the thing and it's, you, you can actually know something about it. You don't necessarily have limitations in our human faculties, so it might take us a while to know a lot about it, but we can actually know something about it. And the thing is complete insofar as that it exists. Okay. The third, so in the created intellect, when our intellect, what's in our intellect is the same as it is in reality then there's a proportion right there. So there's a certain beauty in knowing the truth. And there's a certain clarity, as I just mentioned, as a, as a person becomes, gets to know the thing more and more and more, knows the truth about it more, it becomes clearer, it makes itself known. And then also the completeness occurs once I actually know the thing as it is. Okay. This tells us, therefore, that truth, in knowing the truth and in coming and arriving at the truth and seeking the truth is a beautiful thing. It's beauty. There's a beauty in it. And then we'll end with this. This is one of the reasons why when you see the news immediately habitually lying, there is a true ugliness about it. In addition to it being false, there's an ugliness about it. And the world just becomes uglier and uglier the more you lie. Okay. All right. We're going to stop there.
Uh, and does anyone have any questions? Yes, I mean, is, can that happen? Yes, there can be. And that's based on the principle that um, the primary cause can always bring about a fact uh, without a secondary cause. So um, he doesn't necessarily have... So basically, God causes the thing as it is in reality, which causes the truth in our intellect. At the same time, because existence has, can only have God as its cause, God also has to cause the thing at the same time in our intellect, at the same time. Okay, so that's because the, um, that both the primary and the secondary cause are both fully the cause of the thing. However, God can just dispense with the thing and then just cause the thing in your intellect so which you have an understanding of something. The only place that they say that's not true is, is that he can't give you, he can give you knowledge of something, but he can't give you experience of something without going through the experience because that's uh, contradictory. But the actual knowledge he can give to you without him, without uh, the created order being involved, which is actually what happens in heaven, right? And that's actually, that's the mode of knowing of the angels. And we'll have that once we get to heaven anyway. He just infuses it directly. So. Any other questions? No? Okay.